and welcome to what would have been the second episode of Discovering Research. I'm Gilbert Ramsey, Postgraduate Researcher Development Officer in OPD at the University of Dundee, and in this episode I'll be talking to Dr Linda Jones, who is a Senior Lecturer in the School of Medicine. We're going to be covering some really interesting topics around questions such as what it's like to be the first person in your whole extended family to do a PhD, dealing with the challenge of dyslexia in an academic career, and Linda's research into the role of formative assessment in learning. I said this episode would have been the second episode of our series because in the end we delayed putting this episode out because Linda had some exciting news that she wasn't at liberty to go public with. But I'm delighted to now be able to tell you that Linda has recently been announced one of last year's three winners of the Association for the Study of Medical Education's Excellent Medical Education Awards. Linda's award is based on her cutting-edge work on the use of online discussion boards in postgraduate medical education. So her work combines online learning with creating the next generation of medical researchers. It's hard to think of anything more important or topical right now. Anyway, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. And as with the previous episode, where Charlie and I spoke to the School of Education and Social Work's Richard Holm, we'll be attaching a few links to the anchor page for this episode, just in case any of the topics interest you and you'd like to find out more. So, Linda, um, I was wondering if you could just start out by just telling us a little bit about um, your current role um, in the medical school and a little bit about your kind of current research about the sort of irons in the fire that you have at the moment. Yes, yeah, my role includes, I work in the Centre for Medical Education and where we, uh, the bulk of our work is running an online master's programme for healthcare professionals, predominantly medics, uh, but a mixture. And um, and they can either do a PG cert or a PG dip, postgraduate dip, or they can do the uh, master's. Uh, they can do our master's, and that's by research. And uh, currently, I lead the module on research. So we've turned it into a 60-credit module, which means it's a huge beast, uh, but people can be online and talking to their peers as well as to their supervisors. So it allows it allows more uh, peer learning to happen, and I'm quite keen on that. So most of my work day to day isn't doing research. I'm on a pedagogic contract, but I teach research methods. Um, I don't run the module now, but I did for many years and in my previous role, which was similar, um, down south. Um, and so most of my work is, it's. I love it because it's seeing fairly novice researchers, especially people from a science community, uh, opting into recognising and sometimes doing qualitative research and recognising the value of that. Uh, and so my job is, uh, has, is often about how to develop clinicians into uh, clinicians, into educators, but also into educational researchers. 
So it's a lot about awakening that, finding their curiosity and then sort of nurturing it. Um, but uh, of course, we have over 200 students on that uh, master's program. So um, I run I run the module, with, um, but also we share out the supervision. But I'm currently supervising something like 18 people, I think, 18 masters. Um, and uh, uh, PhD students as well. So that's really quite a, a load in terms of supervision and being able to, I mean, this wonderful word nurture um, um, at the same time as really just you know, covering the bases of, the, of all that. That you know, sounds like, you know, it really sounds like you've got your work cut out. I think I, one of the things I thought was really interesting talking to you previously was this, this thought that you're really, I suppose, I imagine my preconception quite a sort of you know scientific quantitative research heavy environment and as somebody from as I understand it kind of a qualitative background yourself trying to um, I suppose kind of fly the flag for you know the value of qualitative research I can imagine that there are some very interesting conversations there trying to um, kind of inculcate the value of that approach I mean is that do, do you have difficulty with that or do you find that um, Generally speaking, the medical um, uh, PGRs are quite receptive to adding that to their portfolio of methods. The latter, I think. But I mean, I started I started working in medical education per se eleven years ago, and at that point, uh, it was a blended learning course, part, partly meeting people for three days over a period of however long, and partly online. And um, and somebody would say, Linda, what you need to understand is that we're doctors and we we, we like certainty. <laughs> and it was like, really? Oh, I haven't heard that before. <laughs> and slowly, more and more people are saying, do you know what? I've 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 bumped into quantitative research. I did my medical degree. I understand about all of these, all of the sort of how many and drug trials, etc. And this is a chance for me to expand. So th- I think the other thing that's important is, although we're based in the medical school and our students are medics, the centre is mainly um, academics because our job is to enable them to do research. Of course, we do some research ourselves, and some of my colleagues are on research contracts, but I'm, as I say, I educate others, so I get to see this broad span. But more and more people are saying, um, yeah, I know a lot. I know about quantitative. Let me do qualitative or mixed methods. Um, But what then happens is, although they make that choice, gladly make that choice, their mindset is still quantitative. So, for example, when they're writing up their research questions, they'll initially look like, what is the right answer? And it's like, do you remember that conversation we had about, you know, positivism and how if I need to know, will this drug work, then I need to separate out variables if you want to know how do people feel about the vaccine, quantitative research won't work. It won't give you that feel for something. Um, but I, I guess like you, I, I my first degree was social science and social work. And then I was a systemic family therapist. Um, 
And then I worked in policy and development. And then I slowly came to, um, you know, back in. I did a master's in higher and professional education. And then, then for some strange reason, I can't remember why I set out on that. But once you've done, once I'd done that, then I needed to be in an academic environment. So that's my kind of career. It was never planned that I would be a researcher. Indeed, and that's sort of the wonderful thing about research careers. I think often that you know they do go in unexpected directions, and you know, that you can be in um, you know the, the, the route that you've taken into medicine hasn't you know, by any means necessarily been kind of the conventional one you'd expect, and that means that you've got a range of experiences and areas of expertise that you can share that aren't necessarily commonplace. Um, actually, as I understand it, your kind of whole journey into research and academia has not necessarily formed the kind of you know, stereotypical pattern. I wonder if you'd really, even maybe just starting from the beginning, like to just tell me a little bit more about that, that kind of narrative. Okay. Okay, so whistle stop tour. Um, uh, I was born uh, in South Wales, uh, in the valleys. My dad worked at down the mine and my mother uh, was a barmaid. And what's interesting is they're both um, they're both fairly illiterate. My mother can read. My dad couldn't read. All right. Um, and uh, but also if he tried to copy my name, he would write the N backwards. So I think that was a clue that maybe I was going to get a double dose of dyslexia. My mother's name's Barbara, um, but uh, she couldn't tell the difference between a B and a P. Um, and then I'm just going to jump forward a little bit. I was chairing a conference in London in my previous role um, as an educational consultant. And uh, and uh, I introduced somebody who was doing a pan-London and diagnosed dyslexia um, re- piece of research. And she, I said to her, oh, I know I'm dyslexic. I know I am. I've never been tested. And she said, we'll test you. So they tested me and said, yeah, dyslexic. And then uh, a university employer paid for the full dyslexia package. And um, true to form, I am I'm a very well compensated dyslexic in terms of words, uh, but in terms of number and space, I'm I'm fairly classic dysnumerate person. So um, I'm not good with numerical concepts and things so hence qualitative research um anyway so i i in school i always got 68 and i could never understand why students got 83 because i put in so much effort but no matter what i did there there people would say should try harder linda's very bright but she should try harder um so uh, and I used to think, but I did try hard. And um, yeah, so I'm a fairly classic undiagnosed. Uh, well, I was undiagnosed, but now I now I know I am a dyslexic. I and it's amazing how poor people often do get, isn't it, you know, with undiagnosed dyslexia, just finding their own workarounds, finding their own Absolutely. ways of compensating. Absolutely. I can remember a colleague who was doing research into dyslexia and I said to her, I can never spell necessary. And she said, you will by the end of the day. And halfway through a conversation, she pointed at me and said, one collar, two socks. I was like, what? And she said, that's how you spell necessary. So I can spell necessary now. 
<laughs> one one C, two S. Not sure I can spell necessary. Come to think of it, I'm going to go through it in my head. Well, of course, now that you've said the one colour two socks, that yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas I, I just could, and I would get anxious about not being able to spell. Um, yeah. So okay. So then I, um, one day at school, um, I was seventeen. I was started to do A levels in science which was pretty crazy for somebody who struggled with numbers. Um, and uh, I just decided to leave. So I left school. I got a job as an oxyacetylene welder, a trainee uh, metallurgist. And then from that, um, I realized that I really wasn't very good at, at this weighing things. And uh, and I went to, to Cardiff. I left home at 18, went and did an OND in medical sciences, uh, where I was told I was pretty average. I like to think I was superbly average, actually. And uh, they said, you probably pass, but just why don't you? We see from your notes that you're very involved in fundraising and, and doing community work. Why don't you do social work? And then a year later, I was doing a degree unheard of you know, in my family. So I hear lots of people saying I was the first in my family to do a degree. Whereas I think of my 54 first cousins, I'm, there may be two others who got a degree, but of that, that's all. The rest, you know, are um, working class people. And I think uh, I do feel quite excluded from my family to pursue, to feel alive and excited and to satisfy my curiosity. I became Jones the smart ass, really. So I was I had to sort of leave my family, my country and um, and find a way through. So initially it was social work and very quickly I was I was always asking why. So I wanted to know why something worked. Um, so I worked in social work for uh, 12 years, burnt out because I worked with um, children who'd been sexually abused, very young children. So it was very stressful work. And uh, and then I shifted into policy work. So I worked for the equivalent of the GMC in social work. It was then called SETSWA. And a lot of that work was about quality assurance and evaluation of things. And I was always interested in rather than how many, in what way. So um, uh, and I, I loved it. I worked there part time for 10 years. Um, then I worked for myself for five years, um, doing quite a lot of evaluation uh, and some bid writing. I think I got I got three and a half million for a conglomerate of universities. Um, and I wasn't involved in the research, but I wrote the bid. Fantastic transferable <laughs> skills to take into That's a research career. Transferable skills. Absolutely. So then um, I, uh, whilst I, but whilst I worked for Setswa, I did a master's in higher and professional education. And we had to do a, a, a master's dissertation research. And I decided to do it on storytelling because a lot of my work was training, training social workers, training social services uh, personnel. I just got interested in that. I was getting great feedback. They were all saying, oh, we love the stories and people would laugh and people would say, oh, it's great when you tell these stories. It brings them to life. 
So I did my dissertation thesis on the role of storytelling and humour. Um, so that's the sort of person I am. Yeah, great, thanks. I'm glad it works. But why does it work? Because in order for it to be transferable to other people, we have to understand the mechanism and open that mechanism up for them rather than just going, I'm a storyteller. I like telling jokes. I can be funny. I can work the room, you know, and make people feel involved. But what am I doing? And you don't want people to be like me. You want people to be like themselves, but using these tools. Yeah. So I did that. And uh, then for some reason, I went back to do a a doctorate in international education, both at the at the Institute of Education uh, in London. Um, uh, And then I came into medical education and uh, and I've remained involved in the research edge of that. Um, And now that, yeah, so that kind of brings us up to date, really. Thank you so much for sharing that. So um, when we first met and had the conversation that led to us thinking that maybe we um, could do a podcast episode together, one of the really interesting things I remember you talking about quite a lot was the topic of formative assessment, specifically um, in relation to um, the supervisory relationship um, between supervisor and, and postgraduate. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit um, about some of your work um, in that area. So my thesis was looking at um, the role of, uh, well, it was looking at the importance of emotions within supervisory relationships or within pedagogic relationships. Um, and in a nutshell, what I my thesis suggests that um, what makes the difference between feedback where I tell you something and you hear it, that's feedback, but it's only when you really make use of it that it becomes formative assessment. It forms you, it grows. Um, and I think for, for, for the learner to value and, and take on board feedback, there's a huge amount, there's a lot of emotional dimensions. And those are things like trust, trusting that I have your best interest at heart, uh, trust that if I give you critical feedback, it's for the best reasons. So trust, mutual respect, two-way respect, not one-way respect. Um, yeah, so so that was my thesis. And now I, uh, I'm currently supervising a a wonderful Sri Lankan student who is looking at how that notion of respect two ways is being challenged. And and his his struggle is that he comes from a culture where that respect is one way. You know, if, if I'm your student, then I respect you. I don't question you. I I accept whatever you tell me. And I um, and then countries like Sri Lanka, post-colonial countries, then adopt Western ideas like student-centeredness and two-way relationships. But their culture is one of hierarchy and respect going upwards. So there's I, I just love that 
something that's dear to my heart and I believe in is quite challenged by some research I'm helping somebody else do. And clearly there is a, a huge range of um, you know, academic cultures. I mean, I, I, I don't know much about Sri Lanka. I even think Americans um, certainly, uh, you know, um, seem to maybe be more respectful, more likely to call you um, professor or, you know, or sir or whatever. I don't know if that's a, a stereotype than maybe British um, postgraduates would. I was just wondering what it was that actually, I mean, obviously you had your, your work on, you know, going in that direction. Maybe you had your work on, on storytelling, on humour. So emotions were kind of on your radar. But can I ask what it was specifically that led you to choose that thesis topic? Um, yeah, a lot of my work at that point was um, I was a I was the lead assessor for a Greater London uh, Greater London postgraduate social work organisation, um, and social work had gone from being um, diploma level qualification like nursing. You know, Nurse 2000 meant all nurses had to have a degree. So you have that sort of rise in the qualification level. Um, and social work had done that shift to uh, to um, all, all graduate workforce. But of course, many of the people who who had a diploma then needed to increase their level of qualification. And certainly, you know, in Britain, there had been a real push within social work to increase the number of um, uh, the percentage of the workforce who reflected the population. So we had lots of people from Bangladeshi communities, from um, uh, Caribbean communities in London. And so I found myself working a lot with them on portfolio work. Um, and so my the sort of feedback I was having to give them highly critical feedback because that jump they were sort of they came into social work from a caring perspective, you know, really solid women who brought fabulous values, but they couldn't write an essay. So I had people going, I can't do this. I can't do this. So my work was all about you can do this. Come on, we can do this together. And of course, you were able to really presumably kind of say that with some authority because you yourself had you know, come from quite a challenging situation, mm. having overcome a lot of different kinds of obstacles to get into research. And so actually, there's a real you know, synergy there, isn't there, that you were you know, doing in your work, you were bringing people from diverse backgrounds kind of into research, into you know, upskilling them in that area, and then yourself doing a PhD in this area. Um, and they just, I mean, that seems to me to be incredibly rich. Um, there's one more maybe obvious question I'd like to ask, but just before I ask it, just the thing that's just intriguing me is doing this research on um, formative assessment, on emotions and the relationship between supervisor and supervisee, what was your relationship with your own supervisor like? It was great. Um, but, you know, I was, I was late 40s. When middle forties, when I started my um, when I started my um, doctorate, um, and she had okay. So when I did my masters, uh, I was offered a supervisor who said to me, "What do you mean you want to 
get people to read stories and tell you what they thought of them and how they'd use them. I think you need to do this. Here's a book. Go away and read it. And I thought, I won't finish this. So um, I met my supervisor because she was running a module on assessment um, and uh, and I really liked her. Um, and her name is Sue Hallam. And uh, I think she her interest was in teaching music. But um, I said to her, will you supervise me? This is what I want to do, um, storytelling. And she went, wow. And I said, will you supervise me? So I think I found the right supervisor. I think I had enough agency. I was old enough to go. This guy, who probably was good in his field, but he showed no interest in me. It, it, he was, um, yeah, he was looking at me askance. You want to use, you want to have a discussion with people about stories that work and like, what was this? You know, do some real research. And then when I met somebody went, wow, that's interesting. She became my supervisor for that. And then when I decided to do the doctorate, I said to the institute, I want to do this doctorate, but only if I can have this person as my supervisor. And my so, goodness, that issue of agency is so important, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy to just um, kind of think, you tick the box, to feel that you have to be supervised by this person because they're technically the right person or they're prestigious in the field, rather than really thinking about what your research is and what your relationship is going to be and what the specific things are this person can offer. Um, can I, can I add sorry. something else that, I, that is really important for me, developing other people? And that's where my energy is. Because when we do research, it can be really exciting at the start, but it's how to maintain that effort, you know, through the dark times where you hit brick walls or where um, whatever, there are problems with uh, the sampling or whatever. You need to keep going. So what I say to all of the master's students is make sure that whatever you choose to do your study in isn't something somebody else is saying to you. That would be a good study. Um, find something that was, is sustainable. And for me, that's about energy. So what, what I liked about and why I asked Sue to do it was that she responded to my passion and my curiosity about why does storytelling work? And I, I think so often in research, people say, I want a degree, I want to get a PhD. And so I'll do, if I can find a funded PhD, I'll do it. But then within that, the more they can find passion for it, then I think the easier the ride will be. Absolutely. Even within a funded PhD, there is often more scope to maybe put more your own spin on it than you might believe is, is the yes. case. Um, I'm really interested in just following up a little bit on your specific findings in relation to um, formative assessments. You're talking about the importance um, of the relationship between supervisor and supervisee in ensuring that the supervisee kind of is able to really accept um, feedback, is able to actually take on board feedback. Um, and I was just wondering how that would translate into actual, so if you were in, if you're giving advice to a supervisor or indeed to a supervisee on how you can actually in practice enact that in your relationship um what would your i mean maybe that's um may, maybe it's difficult to boil that down 
in the kind of the space that they have. But what would your immediate tips be? What would your immediate suggestions be? The things that you could really start doing right away? Yeah, it's a nice question. So overall, I think what I did in in my study was I I wanted to look at the notion of caring, caring uh, as educators, because I know that I'm somebody who does care. And it's not it's often not that my colleagues don't care, um, but I have colleagues who think I care too much and that's fine. Um, and I'm you know, and I also see other people who care appropriately. But that caregiving is kind of one way. It's 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 laid down what it should be. And I'm not suggesting people step outside of appropriate boundaries. I'm not saying we should care in that sort of the way we care about our friends. Clearly, if 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 I have a supervisee, then we have a relationship within the university, and that's what shapes it. But within that you know, starting a conversation with how are you doing that isn't just form. So how are you today? You're fine. Great. So did you manage to get that task done? It's it's like, yeah, you have to start with hello, how are you? Now let's get on with what we're really here for versus hi, how are you? What's happening in your world that will have an impact on your effectiveness as a researcher, how can I help you be as effective as you can be? So I think it's about, um, what I was going to say was that I found that most of my reading was outside of medicine and it was looking beyond, I wasn't, sorry, I should, let me just say, there's four case studies. One was med, med, undergraduate medical students. One was postgraduate GP training. One was um, Five Rhythms uh, Dance, which is a personal growth with no right or wrong. And the the fourth one was Shaolin Academy Kung Fu, where it's absolutely right. And the Shifu is right. He will tell you what to do and you will do it. You know, it's so I I chose those case studies. Um, And uh, what I found was that mostly the the students uh, doing Kung Fu worshipped their Shifu. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was, uh, and for him, I was sometimes being quite insulting. Uh, I think I'm just going to go off piece a bit and just tell you about this because uh, I think this is a nice story. Um, I'll have to soften the language somewhat. But um, I, uh, when I asked Shifu, when I first met him, how will I get uh, the students to agree to do to fill in my questionnaire? OK, um, so I was doing a questionnaire with the students and interviews with the, the teachers. Um, and uh, he said to me, no, they'll do it because I'll tell them to do it. So this guy is is a Shailen master, okay? He you would have seen his teachers on the TV because they are superstars in the Shailen world. You know, I've seen him hit his arm with a brick and it doesn't break. You know, it's it's like magic. He's a, a superhero, and the students see him like that. And he says to me, "No, I'll tell them to do it, so they'll do it." 
And I went back to the Institute of Education and said, I have a problem. This really revered teacher is telling me that I don't ask the students for their permission. So what do I do? So it's non-consent, you know, I and uh, uh, I went to the head of the course who said, well, then you'll have to drop that case study. So I want to find out what happens within a world. But the institution is telling you have to disagree with this revered teacher, not show him the respect he expects from me. That's the deal. He's a teacher. You know, that's his world, his culture. Um, and so what you need to do is to find a different case study. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so I went to see my supervisor and then uh, I'd done a module on uh, comparative educations with a very wonderful um, elderly. I think he was about late 70s by the time he was teaching us and he was amazing. And I went to him and said, told this story about how I couldn't carry on with the research because I couldn't get consent directly from the students. And he said, I, I can help you with this. Take a note, Linda, just write this down. Dear, dear ethics committee, bleep, 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 off. <laughs> he just said, <laughs> go away. Uh, and I said to him, well, you might be able to do that, but I can't. You know, yeah, somebody like you might say that to them, but I don't think they let me. Um, and so what we agreed was that I would respect Shifu and I would give every student a questionnaire. But there was an additional question on it, which is, do you want to fill in this questionnaire? If not, please take the box and just hand it back to me. So they did give their consent. But I respected his, you will give it to them and they will take it off you. So we found a workaround. So it's that sort of workaround, really. Um, so I think that's, that's also a really interesting lesson. I mean, exactly that and the kind of flexibility and the sort of um, creativity you sometimes have to have in, yeah. in, in carrying out kind of ethical research within, in, in the real world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because to do to do what the institution wanted me to do was the message actually was, well, your way of doing it, Chinese person, is wrong. Your view that the teacher gives consent is wrong. Our Western perspective, which is the individual makes that decision. So we have um, collectivism versus individualism and the institution was saying we are right um, and I had to find a workaround um, and what I discovered was to go back to feedback you know uh, I was watching this teacher shout at people I mean the tone was amazing it's like music you know it's like do do more jump higher try harder no you know, it was really staccato instruction and demand from the teacher, which most of us wouldn't do in the classroom. OK. And and my view initially was this person isn't doing formative assessment at all. He's pushing people. And then I I realized what I was watching. So I used ethnogra an ethnographic method as well. I, I watched lots of classes. And I, I noticed how he was telling people jump over this bamboo cane. And I realized he was adjusting how high it was. 
as they ran up, he might drop it a bit. So that's formative assessment. Where do you know? Where do you want to get to? It was about enabling them to succeed. So he wasn't just asking them to do things he couldn't do. So you've got Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. Enough challenge to motivate, but not so much challenge that somebody can't do it. And I was seeing that, but in a different form. And then when I looked at all four case studies together... I discovered that the five rhythms people didn't expect feedback individually and the teacher expected to give feedback to the whole group. So if somebody wasn't breathing, she would say, and breathe more, breathe twice as much because she saw one person not breathing. Um, You know, so you take what you see and you give it to the whole group. And that's what the students, that's what five rhythms dancers go into class expected. And and with the GP trainees, there was lots of negotiation. Um, you know, it, it, it was mutual respect. And uh, and then I was seeing the undergraduate first years. And when I looked at their questionnaires, what they were saying was, we want a teacher like Shifu. <laughs> they didn't know Shifu, but there was alignment. The one place where it was not aligned was undergraduate students undergraduate students and medic and a medical lecturer but the medical lecturer that I'd seen was stunning lots of formative moments within the classroom but the students couldn't see it they wanted to be told what to do they wanted security so I, I think for me you asked about tips I think the first one is to learn to live with um, uncertainty and not to look for the always look for the right answer or to always look for um, the obvious, but to to listen at the periphery and to to notice um, what's really going on and to be willing to pursue that or at least to reflect on it and not just pursue a single strand. So I do. A lot of my teaching over the years has increasingly included um, uh, Ralph Stacey's work on uh, uncertainty and certainty and chaos and and things like that. So I really like that stuff. And so getting better at managing uncertainty, recognising and valuing, accepting that uncertainty is just obviously a hugely important thing in the supervisor relationship. And I suppose I was just wondering, um, in terms of the obstacles that you've overcome, there's also the dyslexia that you talked about. Is there anything, is there any advice that you'd offer to people in that situation, people who are kind of trying to get into this um, this world um, with the added burden of um, really not having um, kind of precedence that they can draw on? Yeah. yeah. And also maybe of doing something which runs against the grain of their own culture, of, of, of what the people at home value, of what their family might value. Mm. Well, I think the first thing is find new people that you can belong to. So I'm, I'm not saying don't belong to your, your home and your family and your culture. Respect those, hold that. Uh, I hope I'm not suggesting that my working class roots mean these people are worth less than me at all. But I can remember my cousin saying to me, 
uh, I, I'd taken the champagne and and a load of food, so because I wanted to celebrate getting a P, you know getting a, a PhD, and they said, and my cousin said to me, um, uh, so what does PhD stand for? So I said, you know, one line, and she went, ah, oh, right, and then she turned to my cousin uh, and said, did you see Emma Dale last night? And that was the end of the conversation. You know, because there's, there's like, yeah, she's, so we know you're clever. You got a degree, so what, you know? And why should they? Why should they think that I'm any better? No, I'm not. But I'm different. And so I've had to create a world where I find new people to have as role models. I find people who can challenge me, who can, can value what I bring. And certainly, I think one of the things is, especially for people who come into academia later, because I only came inside the university for employment when I was, gosh, how old was I? 2006, my first academic, academic post as a, a, you know, as faculty, uh, rather than doing teaching in universities. So that's, you know, less 16 years ago or something. And I'd say, you know, value what you bring. So I think one of the things I remember us talking about was, you know, I trained as a systemic family therapist. Now, systemic family therapist, the sort of principle is that you believe that the families can heal themselves, can solve their own problems. So my job as a, as a therapist is not to tell them what's wrong with them, but rather to help them look at how they've coped with dilemmas before, what strengths they have, what strategies they might have, um, and how to reframe their story, you know, where their story is all about one of us is dyslexic, uh, sorry, is anorexic, or one of us has a mental illness, or one of us has abused another one of us, and and instead saying, okay, so let's think about what you can do about this rather than what I can do about it. But it's all about, also about protecting vulnerable people. So you have to hold people whilst they come up with solutions. And I suppose I felt sad leaving that bit of my life behind as I moved on. Mm. And now... I'm really into something called appreciative inquiry. So I do a lot of appreciative inquiry research. And I can give you a few examples of that. But the, the thing about appreciative inquiry is it's not deficit model. You don't go in to say what's wrong, what should be done differently, what should be done differently. You must do this. You should do that. Rather, you go in and say, OK, when is this working best? Tell me about when it works the best. What else could you do to to do more of that? And what would the world be like if you did do more of that? And how can we make that happen? So appreciative inquiry for me is a kind of full circle. It's the research version of a previous self. Um, and so whilst social work might not be seen as, on the sort of pedestal that we put doctors and, you know, it's, it's, it's got less of a professional standing. I think that what I did for my, 
my uh, thesis was I looked a lot to the world of social work where we do teach emotional intelligence, you know. So so I'm looking beyond the current boundaries and looking for what might work. Um, And so my current research interests are in a a lot of them use appreciative inquiry. So I'm looking at how do discussion boards operate and how uh, when are they at their best for promoting peer learning where students help each other learn rather than be dependent on the teacher who might only come to the discussion board once a week for example and so online discussion boards um, because we're an online course we use them all the time but who knew when I started out with one of these studies that Covid would hit and more teaching is done online and more people need some guidance on how to facilitate the best discussion boards. Well, that's <clears throat> I feel like we could talk for you know another hour about that whole issue of how best to do things on online um, and what effective online education means. But I, I think there's something wonderful about um, the way, as you say, we've come full circle um, with the appreciative inquiry and, you know, the point that in a way, I mean, one thing that I'm definitely taking from this conversation um, that might be of use to to researchers, people starting out in research careers, perhaps, is this point that you should play to your strengths, you should work with what you have um, and make something of that. And as you say, build your own world, kind of building on, on what you have rather than thinking about deficits rather than thinking about um, you know, um, ways in which you think you fall short. And I think that's a wonderful place perhaps to end kind of this particular conversation. And maybe this is a to be continued. But um, I'd just like to say thank you so much, um, uh, Dr. Jones, for, for, for making the time and for being so, you know, for sharing so much about your own work and your own experience. And um, hopefully I'll catch up with you again before too long. Um, but have a, have a wonderful day and, and many thanks again.